Hey y'all, David here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the American Spinal Injury Association's annual scientific meeting in 2022. Just a reminder that this is the first year of SCI Science Perspectives, so we apologize for the technical difficulties we faced and hope the audio quality doesn't distract too much from your listening experience. We plan to record live at meetings in coming years, and promise at those times we'll have our kit up to speed. For now, enjoy this session. Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Community Perspective episodes with Jacob G. Long, recorded live at the 2022 Asia Annual Meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm your first host, Marla. And I'm David. Today, we'll be discussing the unpublished results of a project titled, Does the Speed of Robotic Leg Movement During Tilt Table Verticalization Mitigate Orthostatic Hypotension in Subacute Spinal Cord Injury, which was enabled due to the 2019 Nielsen Asia Research Award. Our guest today is Jacob G. Long. Jacob received his doctorate in physical therapy from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in 2013. He joined Methodist Rehabilitation Center in 2014, soon transitioning to the spinal cord injury program to advance his education and clinical expertise with this complex condition. In parallel to his clinical duties, he achieved two assistive technology certifications from the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America, RESNA. The Assistive Technologies Professional, ATP, and the Seating and Mobility Specialist, SMS. After the passing the board, the American Board of Physical Therapy Specializations Board Examination in Neurological Physical Therapy, NCS, in 2018, he has been promoted to the position of clinical specialist. In this role, he serves as a resource and mentor to other therapists and students and actively collaborates with the investigators at Methodist Research Division and the Center for Neuroscience and Neurological Recovery Welcome, Jacob, as well as our live audience here at the 2022 Asia Annual Meeting held in New Orleans. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Great to have you. Okay, if we're starting off this Community Perspectives episode, can you begin with just a broad take-home summary of the results of your project thus far, knowing that it's still ongoing to some extent? If I had to kind of distill it down, I think what I would say is that tilt table verticalization, so you know, strapping a patient to a table and bringing them gradually to an upright standing position um, is beneficial, but adding the stepping motion, there's, there's a robot on the machine that um, attaches to the patient thighs and pat, brings their legs through a passive stepping motion, almost a marching motion, while coming to a fully upright position definitely helps um, to support the blood pressure. and keep them conscious and upright and gaining all those benefits of participating in that treatment. So to kind of take that down a little bit more too, within the context of our study, um, it, the evidence does seem to suggest that faster stepping can be better than slower stepping, but the slower stepping may be beneficial for most people at the very least. So can you tell us a little bit about orthostatic hypotension and how that would be important for a person living with a spinal cord injury to know about how it can possibly affect someone with a spinal cord injury, particularly in your setting and inpatient rehabilitation as a physical therapist? Yeah, for sure. So orthostatic hypotension is something that's experienced by a lot of SEI patients. 
am looking through the literature, kind of gearing up for this. Um, I saw statistics talking about something like 75% of all subacute SEI patients have some form of ortho orthostatic hypotension, and a fair amount of them will have the condition without actually noticing the symptoms as well. So to jump into that, um, orthostatic hypotension is a, a drop in blood pressure when you get vertical, you know, if, if you have to just distill it down. So when you go from uh, lying down to sitting or sitting to standing, you see a significant drop in blood pressure. Um, and it can be to the point where patients pass out. I've had that happen several times. When I'm explaining it to patients, I usually relate it back to, to pre-injury when they've you know, just been vegging out on the couch at home for a prolonged period of time and they set up or stand up very quickly and you get that tunnel vision and kind of that dizzy, kind of swimmy-headed feeling for a few seconds, and then after a bit it clears. That's, that's how I usually will relate it to most patients, and they, they get it after that. And then when they begin to experience it, then they, they know what they need to do. Oh, I'm sorry, and I didn't fully answer your question either. You asked its impact on as we go. So in the clinic, what we see is it can interfere a lot with just you know, basic bed mobility, you know, getting in and out of bed, getting out of the wheelchair. Um, for those patients that can stand, coming to a full stand for a prolonged period of time, it can interfere with all those, which every bit of that is generally a goal that a patient is working towards, you know, trying to be more independent, trying to do more things on their own. So if they're experiencing these drops in blood pressure to the point where they could potentially pass out, as you can imagine, if they're standing and this happens, they could fall and exacerbate their injury. You know, they could hit their head, hit their neck, you know. We get quite a few elderly patients that come in that have had some type of spinal injury that experience this. So they could easily lead to other orthopedic injuries, you know, fractured hips, uh, fractured femurs, things like that. So it can definitely affect these patients during the course of their treatment. Yeah, and you know, we see kind of in the subacute phase in inpatient rehab, especially, and even kind of moving forward, patients wearing, you know, their abdominal binders or their TED hose stockings, things like that to kind of keep their blood pressure at a, you know, regulated level. And now, you know, what we're talking about here is more of this tilt table mechanism. And then with the addition of sort of that walking movement, can you talk a little bit about what this setup looks like, what a patient that would be receiving this type of treatment could expect? So set up, uh, it's, a, it's a table, you lie down on the table. There's some harnessing that happens um, across the waistline, over the shoulders, across the chest. Um, there's a couple of cuffs, thigh cuffs, that attach to the robot portion of the table that attach to the patient's thighs. It's, it's close to the bottom of the thigh. It's about three to four inches above the knee, actually, is where it attaches. And then your feet are secured to a foot plate on the device. and then. Once we initiate training, um, the robot begins with the passive stepping motion in a you know, fully supine, or sorry, fully lying down position, trying not to get too medical here. Um, <laughs> so we begin with the stepping with the patient lying down. And then once we're sure things are going correctly, there's no, no pain or other issues being caused to the patient by the device, then we gradually begin to bring them towards that upright position. Usually just you know, moving 10, 20 degrees at a time, Staying there for a couple of minutes, just kind of assessing to see if their blood pressure is staying good, they're not having any issues, and then just working our way up gradually to that full standing. So it's, a, it's an in intensive setup, but it's not a difficult setup. It just takes a little time. Uh, we definitely have some more questions about the setup. But first, you have done this test in subacute spinal cord injury. Can you quickly define what that means? All right, so most, the large majority of our patients that we bring into our inpatient rehab facility, 
they've already had their injury and they've already been through the acute care hospital. So um, that's, that's the portion of the medical system most people are familiar with. They've gone in and doctors have stitched them up, stabilized them, made sure that they're, you know, there's no, hopefully no significant issues. And then now they're ready to begin the process of rehab for transitioning back home. So a lot of times they will come to us at that stage. So when we say subacute, we just mean they've They've had their injury, they've been patched up, and now we've kind of gotten past that real severe stage of what's happening, and we're ready to start learning how to live with this. So we, get to, we catch a lot of those patients within the first one to two months of their injury. Part of the parameters of the study is we we're trying to recruit patients that were less than 12 weeks since their initial injury. So I, I kind of use that in my head as a guideline, but um, the sub-acute phase spans or can span several months um, after their initial injury. I think the last thing I read was suggesting that from time of injury to six months, you're still kind of considered in that subacute phase before you hit that chronic phase of the injury. Do you think the results would have been different in chronics? Uh, it's definitely a possibility. We, as a little bit of an anecdote, we, ha we have a patient that actually comes in weekly to use the Urigo um, on an outpatient basis, and he will, readily tell you that he when he misses a training session for that next week he, he says his spasticity is worse um, his bowel bladder function is worse he in general just does not feel quite as good as he did before so there he he's fully believes in the device and thinks that it very much helps him um, on that more chronic level of his injury and he, he is several years post-injury at this point you anticipated my question perfectly. I know some people who have SEI and standing frames, and if they use their standing frame consistently, they're pretty good with their BP regulation, or so they feel they are. So this device, do you think it has, is it necessary? Like at home, do I need something this complicated? I could just have a standing frame. I think if you can tolerate the standing frame or the, uh, well, there are, I think there are some tilt tables in use out in the community, um, but I think if you can tolerate the standing frame, it's definitely much more user-friendly. Usually it's just a quick transfer in. Once you're in, you strap in your feet, strap in your knees and your, your waistline, and then just gradually come towards a full standing position. And if, if the patient can handle that, I think that's beneficial because then you're not having to supplement their own body's ability to maintain their blood pressure, their body is actually doing the work of maintaining them on their own. With the Arigo, you're, you're, you're trying to support that through the stepping and the e-stem and that kind of thing. So if the patient can tolerate the standing frame, I'd say go for it. But in that situation where they can't, this, this is an option. Now, cost can be an issue. It's not a cheap device. I'm not sure on the exact figure for purchase, but I know it's, it's in the range of $150,000 to $200,000. So it's, yes, it's an expensive device, but it is very beneficial for use. Oh, that's great. Um, okay, back to the functioning or what it's like to be on this thing. I heard you before, I believe, say this could go as fast in terms of the stepping as 80 steps per minute. What on earth does that look like? For me personally, it kind of looks like a brisk walk. Um, that's kind of how I would describe it. You know, like you're, you're headed for class and you're late and you're trying to get there on time and you're just walking a little faster, but you're not quite running. Uh, that's kind of how it looks to me. Does anyone get uncomfortable with the speed? 
Ah, I don't know that I've had any patients report feeling uncomfortable with the speed. Usually, um, if a patient does report discomfort of some kind, it's as we progress towards that full standing position. A couple of them have said they feel like they're about to be thrown out of the device <laughs> just because they don't, you know, they don't have the the trunk control or the control of their body to be able to maintain that upright position on their own. So as you get more towards 90 degrees, they feel like they're just going to keep going. <laughs> so with the stepping, not so much. With the upright position, maybe. Does anyone want to go faster? I've had patients ask. I've had patients ask. <laughs> and unfortunately, I have to say, sorry, manufacturer, zero to 80. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So you bring up the tilt angle and this feeling of discomfort maybe at the top. So it makes me think, if someone has a spasm in this device, what happens? So the device will tolerate spasms to a degree. It has, my understanding is that it has force sensors within the robotic arms to just make sure that there's not a force applied to it that would exceed what it can tolerate. I have had a couple instances where that happens. Usually though, we don't see those more severe spasms at that fully upright position. If we're gonna see those, we usually see them pretty early on when we're still at the lower angles of elevation. So it's not as much of a problem. We can relatively quickly bring them back to a full supine or laying position. So, um, but there are, there are contingencies on the device that if you had a patient say, you know, exceed the tolerance of the device and it had to stop the stepping for whatever reason and you needed to get them down in a hurry, there are ways to do it. So you've got a, a fail safe. Um, I'm guessing that you, the team as the researchers or the clinicians are part of that fail safe. Yeah, yeah. The, the clinician that's working with the patient on the ego has to, you know, you're required to be there with them and pay very close attention. But say that situation did happen where the stepping stops and the patient begins to become orthostatic, you could use the device's control of that elevation to get them back down. However, there is a release bar on the side that when you hit it, it, it drops in a controlled manner, but it's much faster than the normal tilting mechanism. So you can, you can get the patient down as fast as you need to. Okay, that's very helpful to know. What about the, let's say things are going right and you want to control the other things the device does, the stepping, the angle. If I'm in the device, can I do that? No, unfortunately. Usually the standing in the Arigo adds about two feet to most people's natural height. Um, so they're well above the control panel. There's a small tablet that's mounted to a, a post on one side of the device where you adjust all the parameters. And when the patient is secured to the device and progressing through the training, they, they don't have access to it. The name of the company that makes the device? Hakoma. Hakoma, if you're listening, the users want control. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, with, the, with the one patient who comes in like once a week to get this treatment, uh, that he's also noted some benefits with his spasticity. Any other benefits that patients have mentioned that they feel with either the tilt table, the combination of the tilt table with the leg movement. Yeah, so specifically in that subacute setting at the inpatient rehab facility, I've had patients tell me they just in general feel better. So I'm, I'm me personally, I just assume that's you know better regulation of blood pressure. I've had patients that it helps with bowel bladder issues, specifically bowel. I've had patients, you know, just being upright against gravity. A lot of our body systems work better when they're getting, being challenged by gravity. So I've had patients tell me that end of things is a little bit better during their stay. I've had some patients tell me that some neuropathic pain, so pain caused by damage to the nerves, feels better during their stay. They don't have to use the, the medications like the, the gabapentin, the Neurontin, and some of those other medications as frequently. 
So, and that's all within that subacute setting. Um, so from outpatient level, I, I only have the one patient that I see on the regular. Um, but he says everything is better. Blood pressure, bowel bladder function, chronic pain, all of it. He, his digestive function, he thinks it's all better. That's such a great point. I mean, that upright positioning can be so important for people with spinal cord injuries. And so this mechanism of finding a way to allow them to tolerate this upright positioning is such an important part of their recovery. So do you want to uh, try to switch over to some audience uh, questions at this point? We do have a question submitted from the audience. All right, Jacob. So Dr. Gary Farkas, who's here at the meeting, wants to know, why is there such a variation in the definition of acute, subacute, and chronic SCI, something that I asked you to define earlier? And should we not have a common definition that is built through a participatory, I guess this is my language now, David, process involving professionals, patients, and in the community? That's a very good question. And it, it sounds like what the questioner is asking for, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like what they're asking for is a more comprehensive definition that involves all the parties involved, um, which is very fair. Um, a lot of these patients, um, at least in my experience, are very opinionated. They know what they want. They know what works best for them. Um, so I think it's a very fair question to ask now as far as why there's so much variability. Um, I don't know that I can necessarily speak to that myself. I know there's multiple disciplines that are involved with the care of this patient. You, know, you have physicians, physical therapists, occupational therapists, nursing, nutritionists, endocrinologists, you know, immunologists. There's a lot of people involved. So that could be a product of the multiple disciplines that are involved with their care and how their approach to things. But um, you know, I don't know that I can answer that with 100% clarity. <laughs> We should put them all in a room and see what definition they come up with. <laughs> Would the room survive that? <laughs> uh, There's only perfect. one way to find out. Okay, we'll move on to our penultimate question here. So, Jacob, you're a clinician and nonetheless with AT certs and an NCS. So you're a busy guy with your practice. How is it that you came to do a research project like this? Yeah, so when we first got this device, it was provided to our, well, provided to our facility by Hakoma, but through application for a quality of life grant that our research department did. Once they, I'm sorry, I'm mistaken. It was not a research department. They, they helped with the application for the grant, but it was one of our um, social workers, actually, that got that process moving. He worked for our, our as our SCI navigator within our facility um, to follow patients, make sure things are going the way they need to, they're accessing the medical care that they need, the resources they need. But he actually first got the application process going and then in tandem with our research department applied for the grant and had the device supplied to our facility. So, um, so we got the, here we go, got it into practice, got through training and then started using it. And then we started asking the question, how best do we use this thing? because it has a lot of things that you can do with it. It has a lot of adjustment and a lot of, you can use it for multiple patient types. Um, you know, we've been talking about this in the context of spinal cord injuries, but we've also treated patients with stroke and brain injury and other diagnoses on this particular device. Several of those other diagnoses can have blood pressure issues that this device has, at least in our experience in our clinic, has helped as well. In the end, was there some funding for this? 
yes, there was funding for the, the research project itself. So we put it into practice, started using it, started those discussions, and then um, decided, you know, we, we might need to dig into this to figure out how to best use the device with our patient populations. So then um, we discovered the Asia grant and uh, the, through the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation and decided to apply for it because we felt like it was a, a perfect opportunity as a clinician since the, the goal of the grant is to provide money for a clinician researcher um, to get into doing some of this stuff and ended up getting it and getting this project off the ground. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jacob. So just to kind of wrap us up, you know, how can a person with a spinal cord injury that's, you know, listening to this episode and learning about your research and maybe reading the paper that comes out, use your research or what would you hope that somebody with a spinal cord injury or their caregiver could learn from what, you, what you're researching? That's a very good question. Probably that there's options. There are ways to treat some of these issues. I've had patients in the past that they're just at such a low point that they don't know how to go forward. They're so overwhelmed by everything, all the baggage that comes along with a spinal cord injury that they're not sure how to proceed. Um, so this particular device could be one pathway that they could use to trying to regain some control over what's going on and you know, treating this particular issue of blood pressure, which can be a pretty prevalent problem for this patient population to try to improve everything else. You know, if your blood pressure is not running low, then you can probably do your bed mobility a lot better. You can probably transfer a lot better. You can probably dress much easier, do your bowel program and your bladder program and everything much more easily and just handle everyday life much better. So it's, me personally, that's kind of where I would head with that question. You know, others might answer differently, but. <laughs> no, that's, that's such an awesome answer. And, and honestly, a great way to look at any of the research that we put out here at Asia is really, you know, how can you adapt it and that there are other options out there and, you know, patients can always be looking for something no matter what frame of their injury they're in, whether it just happened it's a few weeks ago, a few months ago, or years ago. So thank you so much, Jacob, for being here. Um, and thank you to our live audience for participating with us. And yeah, this is great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the first season of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendations of Asia's Americas Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Gro, your producers and hosts, David McMillan and Marla Pitriello, our editor, Abby Fox, and Asia's front off. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com.